To whom are you accountable? As we concentrate on tending to our gardens or watching sports, reading magazines, or preparing to go to church, too few people in this life feel accountable to God or understand His divine justice. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Our studies in the life of the prophet Elisha continue today with a program called Vengeance Belongs to the Lord. We'll find that God indeed punishes those who turn against Him and pardons he who seeks the counsel of salvation in Christ Jesus. Well, Phil, we deal with a pretty heavy topic today as we study God's vengeance. Maybe we should begin by asking the basic question, why is God vengeful? Well, Mark, as soon as we ask that question, I think it's important to understand that when we talk about the vengeance of God, we're not talking about an angry emotional response, like our own feeling of desire for revenge, but we're talking about God's perfect holiness and justice and righteousness. And anyone who seeks God through his son, Jesus Christ, coming in repentance will find mercy from God. But the truth of Scripture is that if we turn away, we will receive the wrath of God against our own unholiness. Well, we have a pretty clear picture of God's vengeance as it's meted out to the likes of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel here in Second Kings. But to whom is vengeance given in our times? Well, Mark, you know, that's really for God to decide, isn't it? But let me just give you one example of an appropriate plea for God's vengeance in our times, and that is the struggle of the persecuted church in the world today. You know, there are Christians around the world who are being persecuted for their faith, and it is appropriate for the people of God to cry out to our loving God for deliverance and for mercy for people who are being persecuted, and also to pray that his justice would be done for those who oppress the church. You know, many of us think we have struggles in life, but it's good as we even think about the struggles of the persecuted church to remember that there are people in much more desperate situation than we're in, and we should be lifting them up to the Lord in prayer. Phil, we thank you. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 9 and listen to God's Word for us today. This week, a copy of a letter crossed my desk. It was a letter written back in November, and it was signed and sealed by the village committee of Xiaobu Village in southern China. And the document read as follows. Villager Wei, please, after reading this notice, you will not attend the Christian church. Otherwise, you will not be allowed to join the local production brigade and be allocated work. Your electricity will be cut off and your children will not be permitted to attend school, nor will you be allowed to build a new house. Now, there are several ways to respond to the news of such persecution. One, of course, is compassion for a dear brother in Christ, along with prayer for his family and for his church. The other response, at least in some degree, that Christians are bound to have is righteous anger. Tormenting a man for his faith in God is a very wicked thing to do. And so whenever Christians come under attack, they cry out to God to be their avenger. Rightly so, for the Scripture teaches that vengeance belongs 
Not to us, but it does belong to the Lord. And one good place to see how divine vengeance operates is 2 Kings chapter 9. The story of revenge begins with the prophet Elisha sending someone to anoint a new king over Israel. And he does so with these words as we find them in verse 6. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. As we continue to read, we discover that God had anointed Jehu to be king for one reason and for one reason only. He was God's chosen instrument to take vengeance on Ahab's house. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The vengeance, you see, belonged to the Lord, even though Jehu was anointed to be the avenger. And if you know this portion of Scripture, you know that if ever a royal couple deserved the wrath of God, it was Ahab and Jezebel. They were greedy. They were vicious. They were idolaters. They turned away from God to worship Baal. They killed many of God's prophets. They seized property which did not belong to them, and the Bible thus describes Ahab's reign by saying that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. What we learn from this chapter of Scripture is that it would not have been right for God to let all of these sins go unpunished. Ahab and Jezebel needed to pay the price for shedding the blood of God's servants. And in the rest of this chapter, we learn at least five lessons about that vengeance which belongs to the Lord. First of all, God's vengeance is thorough. It leaves no sinner unpunished. God told Jehu to kill every last son of Ahab in the kingdom. The whole house of Ahab will perish. Verse 8, I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel. You see, Ahab's sons shared in Ahab's guilt. This is the biblical principle that the sins of the father are visited upon the sons down to the third and to the fourth generation. In this case, God's vengeance will be so thorough that Ahab's entire house is to be punished for their sin. Second, God's vengeance is personal. God notices the particular sins of particular people and judges them accordingly. Consider the way he singles out Jezebel for judgment. Verse 10, as for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel and no one will bury her. This is because God had noticed Jezebel's sin. He saw the way that she worshipped Baal and the way that she slaughtered many of God's prophets and the way that she threatened his prophet Elijah. God witnessed her whole plot to take land away from Naboth and to murder him in the process. And God not only noticed all of these sins, he held Jezebel accountable for each and every one of them. And we learn from this that God's judgment is personal. And then in the third place, divine vengeance is deadly. 
God operates according to the strictest standards of justice. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in this case, there were murders to avenge. Ahab and Jezebel had murdered many of God's faithful servants, the prophets, and therefore their lives were forfeit as well as the lives of their children. The first to die, and the chapter spends most of its time describing this, the first to die was Ahab's son Joram, who was then ruling as king of Israel. Ahab himself has already been killed. Jehu carried out his death sentence against Joram with ruthless skill. In order to maintain the element of surprise, he attacked while Joram was recuperating from wounds he had received in battle. We read this in verse 16. He got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah with him. Now, since it was wartime, Jehu's approach raised an alarm in Jezreel. When the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. The obvious question was whether their arrival meant war or peace. And so Joram began by trying the diplomatic approach. He sent out a servant to ask whether Jehu was coming in peace, and what happened next was very surprising. The horseman rode off to meet Jehu, and he said, This is what the king says, do you come in peace? And Jehu replied, What do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. Now, Joram's servant took one look at Jehu and thought much better of going back to Joram, so he decided to join Jehu's troops. Well, this was very confusing to the people back at the palace, and the lookout reported the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So Joram still didn't know whether these soldiers that were marching on his position were friends or foes, and so he decided to try the same strategy again. He sent out a second scout, and That scout met with the same result, but this time Jehu was close enough to the palace to be recognized by his reckless driving habits. Verse 20, the lookout said, The driving is like that of Jehu. He drives like a madman. And I should perhaps mention that if any of you are attending Westminster Seminary, that there's a question about this on one of the Old Testament exams, which I remember because I missed it at the time. Now, by this time, Joram could hardly stand the suspense. He decided to find out Jehu's intentions for himself. Hitch up my chariot, he ordered, and he rode out to meet Jehu. And the scripture says, this is verse 22, they met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace? Jehu replied, How can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Joram turned around and cried, Treachery! But then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. This was not treachery, but justice. Jehu shot the arrow, but Joram was struck down by the deadly vengeance of the Lord. You know, people sometimes complain about 
the way God carries out his vengeance, especially in the Old Testament. They say that God is arbitrary or vindictive in his judgments. Yet the Bible insists that everything God does is perfectly just, which is a fourth principle of divine vengeance. It is just. You see, what Jehu did was most just. Every member of Ahab's household received exactly what he or she deserved. Notice the importance of Jehu's words to Joram. How can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft abound? In other words, Joram was a sinner in his own right. He perpetuated all of the pagan practices which his mother had introduced into Israel, all the spiritual adultery, all of the idol worship, all of the fertility cults and the sorcery and all the rest of it continued unabated. And so when Joram received death at the hand of Jehu, he was getting justice at the hand of Almighty God. The same was true of Jezebel. She got exactly what she deserved. God finally avenged her for all of the blood that she had shed. And it happened like this. We read about it at the end of the chapter. Jehu went to Jezreel. This is verse 30. And when Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes and arranged her hair and looked out of a window. Some scholars think she was trying to seduce Jehu, trying to get him to take over the royal harem. Others think that she simply wanted to look and to die like a queen. But in any case, as Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? This was a rather clever taunt, because Zimri had murdered his master, but he had only ruled afterwards for seven days. In her sarcastic way, Jezebel was saying that Jehu's victory would only last for about a week. Well, Jezebel herself had not long to live. It took Jehu only a moment to get rid of the woman who had troubled Israel for many years. He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. And so they threw her down and Her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. You know, the justice of Jezebel's demise is obvious. That queen who was so ruthless in destroying her opponents was finally betrayed by her own servants. The queen who was so high and haughty was thrown down from her high tower The queen who was so obsessed with her appearance died an ugly death. And the queen who shed the blood of God's prophets had her own blood shed on the palace wall. This was not simply some kind of poetic justice. It was divine justice. And when Jehu called Jezebel, and this is verse 34, an accursed woman, he was pronouncing God's judgment against her. Perhaps we should remind ourselves that God's vengeance is praiseworthy. When Jezebel came to her bad end, it was all to the glory of God. 
We can well imagine how the righteous people in Israel rejoiced the day that they heard that their wicked queen was dead. There is something about the glory of God in his thorough and deadly and personal just vengeance. And then finally, God's vengeance comes as promised. Consider the location of Joram's death. Of all the pieces of land in all of Israel, Jehu and Joram happened to meet on the plot of ground which once belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. And that piece of land was a monument to Ahab's greed and to Jezebel's treachery. They had obtained that land by assassinating Naboth's character and by swindling him out of his vineyard, not to mention having him killed in the bargain. God saw the whole thing as we read in 1 Kings chapter 21. And so on the day that Ahab gleefully went to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. God's man Elijah was already waiting in the vineyard for him. And when Elijah pronounced God's curse against Ahab and against his household, Jehu was there and he heard the curse. And he was reminded of this when he saw Joram slumped over in his chariot. Verse 24, Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth. Remember? Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord made this prophecy about him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. You see, the death of Joram was a striking and specific fulfillment of prophecy. Joram paid with his life on the very spot that God promised he would pay for it. And of course, the death of Jezebel fulfilled another prophecy. Twice God had promised that she would not receive a proper burial. And so it happened. Jehu went in and he ate and drank. And he said, take care of that cursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. And they went back and told Jehu, who said, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. And so you see, Jehu remembered God's word, and he recognized God's hand in the events of history. And his words are recorded in Scripture to teach that the vengeance of the Lord always comes as promised. Now, what does any of this have to do with life as we live it at the end of the 20th century? These stories of the ancient kings sound old-fashioned, even barbaric to our ears. No one ever thinks about the vengeance of the Lord anymore. Christians don't think about it. We come to church dressed in our Sunday best, and we think little about God's justice nor does the culture think very much about it around us. People are too busy playing Nintendo and 
planting their gardens and reading their magazines and watching sports on television to ever think about divine judgment. And yet what is declared from this pulpit is that God still takes his vengeance, that he is still a God of justice and that this is not a thing of the past, that his justice is at work in the world down to this very day. And so that on occasion God exalts some and brings others down to the dust. And so it will continue until the day of judgment. For the Bible says that that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And that day of judgment will be a day of vengeance. In fact, God will execute the same kind of justice then that he executed through his servant Jehu in the days of Elisha. The final judgment, Scripture tells us, will be thorough. Just as no one escaped from the sword of Jehu, no one will escape from the sword of the Lord. The Bible teaches that we must all appear before his judgment seat. God's vengeance will be personal. Each and every individual who has ever lived will be held accountable for his or her actions. From the littlest child to the oldest patriarch. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And once each individual has been put into his or her place, then God will have his angels bring out all of his files. For Almighty God keeps a permanent record of every thought, every word, and every deed of every person. All of our sins and all of our good deeds are recorded in heaven. The Bible thus calls the day of judgment the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. The Apostle John saw a vision of this, and he described it in this way, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, John's vision does not give us every detail, but isn't it enough to know that God keeps a ledger for every human being so that the sins of every day are recorded line upon line, page upon page, volume upon volume, and library upon library. And it is because of all of those sins that the final vengeance of God will be so deadly. For the wages of sin is death. The Bible says this from nearly the first page until the very last. The only proper punishment for sinning against an infinitely perfect God is destruction. And therefore, when John saw his final vision of the judgment, he also saw there a lake of fire, which he called the second death. Now, is that fair? Yes, for the vengeance of the Lord is perfectly just. 
Why should God have anything to do with those who want nothing to do with him? God is just, we read. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, God is just. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. You see, God will be as just at the final judgment as he was in the days of Jezebel. Each and every person will get exactly what he or she deserves. No more, no less. In fact, that vengeance will be so perfectly just that no one will be able to stand up in God's court of justice and make an appeal. No one will be able to voice an objection or raise a cry of injustice. On the contrary, the Bible says that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. And if Scripture says that these things are true, do not doubt that they will happen as promised. That was the mistake Joram and Jezebel made. Joram never expected to die on Naboth's plot of ground. Jezebel never expected to die at the palace in Jezreel and not to be buried. And yet divine vengeance does come as promised. And the day of judgment will be a day of vengeance. You have God's word for it. Few things are explained as frequently and as fully in Scripture as the certainty of final judgment. So the question that this raises for us is this, what hope do we have for the final judgment? If God's vengeance is as thorough and as personal and as deadly and as just as promised, where will you go? What will you do? Where will you hide? Well, there is only one place to go, and that is to the hill which they called Calvary. And there is only one thing to do, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And there is only one place to hide, and that is in the shelter of his cross. For it was on the cross of Christ that God carried out his vengeance against the sin of his people. And the vengeance of the cross is the kind of vengeance that always belongs to the Lord. It was a thorough vengeance. Christ died for sins once for all. He paid for the sins of all his people all at once. And as everyone knows, it was also a deadly vengeance, not only for Jesus himself, but also for that sin which was nailed to the cross with him. The vengeance of the cross was just. God This is Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The cross shows that God maintains perfect justice in the universe. He requires an exact accounting for sin. Sin cannot be overlooked. It must be atoned for. 
And so Christ died on the cross to satisfy God's vengeance against sin so that even God's mercy rests on the foundation of his justice. And all of this happened exactly as advertised. God always said he would send a Savior, a Savior we read in the Old Testament, who would be pierced for our transgressions. But there is one difference between the vengeance of the cross and God's final vengeance. It's a difference that makes all the difference in the world and all the difference in heaven. And I suppose as well it makes all the difference in hell. For you see, the final vengeance of the Lord will be personal. Those Sinners whose names are not written in the book of life will have to suffer divine vengeance on their own. But it is different at the cross. For at the cross, sinners may ask God to suffer God's vengeance for them. This is what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. To ask that that sacrifice which he freely gave on the cross might count as the atonement for your own personal sin. We're going to close this morning with a hymn by Thomas Kelly, which speaks about the vengeance which Christ suffered on the cross. It says this, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ's the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. In other words, anyone who wants to escape the thorough and personal and deadly just vengeance of God may find certain safety in the cross of Christ. Amen, and let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for your justice, that you do not overlook sin, but demand that it receives the judgment which it deserves. And as we praise you for your justice, we give you praise and thanks for your mercy, which enables us to praise you for your justice at the same time that we ourselves receive the mercy of Christ. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. 
The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.